Good morning, and thank you for joining with us this morning as we consider another incident or episode from the life of King David. A number of years ago, while I was a teacher, I taught computing. I taught the use of ICT. And I constantly reminded my class, have you saved your work? I walk around the class and say, when was the last time you saved that piece of work? Have you saved your work? I use that as background. Because one day I was sitting in my office, it was late on, I'd been working for three, four, five hours on a document which was urgently required. The school was in darkness, everybody had left. I was sitting there bringing the concluding part to my work when the cleaner opened the door and looked in and said, oh, sorry, I, I didn't realize you were still here, Mr. Farrell. Would you mind if I, I vacuumed your room? And before I could speak, she disconnected the extension cord that connected my computer so that she could plug in her vacuum cleaner. And guess what? I hadn't saved any of the work. The work that I had worked on for four or five hours was completely gone. It was, it was completely wiped. There was no more evidence of it. I sat there and looked at a blank screen. And you know, the fact that that work was gone had a consequence for me. That evening, I spent a sleepless night working into the early hours, working on a computer as I tried to rewrite all of the work that had been lost. And you might think, what on earth has this got to do with the story of David? There's two points that I just want you to put into the back of your memory as we consider this. One, it was completely wiped. And two, there was a consequence. I had to work late into the evening. King David lived 3,000 years ago. He's one of the main characters of the Bible. There are 62 chapters of the Old Testament devoted to his biography, and there are 59 references to him in the New Testament. He takes up a, a significant part of our Bible. He brought in, or he ushered in, the, the Golden Age of Israel. He unified the nation. He established a strong government. He built the most powerful empire of his day. He captured Jerusalem and made it his royal residence. It became known as, eventually, the, the city of David. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He prospered. His nation prospered. They defeated his enemies, and, and the extent of their kingdom ran from Egypt in the south right up to the Euphrates in the north, a huge area of a unified kingdom. And God spoke to David and told him that he, his dynasty would last forever. And David got, received God's special blessing and became the ancestor of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. An incredible account. But when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read these words. David went up to the ascent, or the top of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their hands, and they went up weeping as they went. And David went a little past the summit. 
how could a man who had achieved so much, a man who had gained so much, come to this point in his life? That he has come up, if you like, using the picture the Bible portrays of a man climbing to the ascent to the top of the mountain, looking down over Jerusalem, looking down over that city, possibly in his mind for the very last time, and turned and went down the other side. Remember that picture, climbing to a point and then down the other side. The Bible is full of individuals who have struggled. The Bible is full of individuals who have failed. The Bible is full of people who have messed up. Noah, a man of faith, yet he got drunk and sinned. Abraham lied about his wife. Jacob lied to his father. Moses lost his temper. Solomon, who built the temple, sinned. Peter denied Christ. And we could go on. Individuals who we hold in the highest regard, and we wonder, how could they have done this? But then when we look into our own lives, we can see the reason why. David's story in 1 Samuel chapter 11, 12, and 13, which I would encourage you to take time to read. We won't have time this morning to read the whole story. Shows and describes how a man who had reached the top went down the other side. David wasn't a young man when this incident occurred. He was 50 years of old age. He had built up, as I said, this empire. And David was a man who had built up a, a harem of, of concubines, despite God instructing the kings that they were not permitted to do so. He didn't go to battle. He was on the top of the rooftop, and if you know the geography and the topography of the city, David was there looking down across the rest of the city, and as he was there, his eyes fell upon a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and she was bathing, and, and David was attracted to her. She was a beautiful woman. And David inquired about this woman, and he was told she was married. But that didn't become a barrier for, for David. He sent for Bathsheba. She was brought to him. He slept with her, and she became pregnant. As if that wasn't bad enough. As if that wasn't enough for to jolt David. David then arranged that the husband of Uriah, of Bathsheba, Uriah, would be taken and brought home, hoping that he would sleep with his wife, that they would conceive, or that it would seem that they had conceived, and he would be able to step aside from this terrible incident. But Uriah didn't do so, didn't cooperate. And Uriah was then sent back on to the, the battlefield. And Joab was given the instructions to arrange for Uriah to be killed. And Joab did exactly as he said. And poor Uriah, the Hittite, went into battle and died on the battlefield. The messenger came to David to tell him that what he had asked had been fulfilled, that Uriah was dead. And we have these hard, callous words. Tell Job, don't let this thing upset you. There's no way to anticipate whom the sword will cut down. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. Encourage Job, 
with these words. Don't let this upset you. How far had this man fallen? How far had he come down of the pinnacle of where he had been? Within nine months, David had not confessed. And we know that Nathan the prophet was sent by God and Nathan came to David and Nathan told the story, a well-known story of a man who had a, a lamb, a special lamb. And that lamb was taken from him and it was killed and it was eaten by a man who had a huge flock of that lambs. And, and David was enraged by this story. And he said, that man should be put to death. That is a terrible thing which has occurred. And yet, Nathan stopped. He pointed the finger at him. And he said to David, You, you are the man. How those words must have pierced David. Look at what he has done. Have you kept a list of what he has done? Lust, adultery, hypocrisy, lies, murder. How can a man like this be called a man of God, a man who followed after God's own heart. We look at our own hearts and we only and fully understand. David responds in one short sentence. There are no excuses. He doesn't try to embellish it. Speaking to Nathan, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. We get detail, we get great insight into how David felt and how David responded as we consider Psalm 51. Alan's going to read Psalm 51 to us in a moment. The inscription at the start says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. In it, the author acknowledges, confesses his trespasses before the Lord, recognizes his need of God's favor and forgiveness. In the book of Psalms, there are seven penitential Psalms. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 speak directly into this situation. Listen to the words of David. Listen as he confesses his sin to God. Alan is going to read Psalm 51 for us now. Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, 
and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you, Alan, for reading that psalm. The first verse of the psalm is a plea for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from all iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Within these first five verses of this psalm, David actually uses virtually every word there is to describe sin in the Hebrew language. He talks about blotting it out. He talks about washing it away. And he talks about cleansing it. He says, God, remove my sin. Blotting out refers to the wiping out or, or taking the ink off a papyrus that had been used. Because the ancients valued papyrus so often, when a papyrus had been taken, they could take a sponge-like material and they could wipe it and the, and the ink would disappear and the papyrus was clean. There was no record. It was gone. That's the word that David's saying. Completely take that record away from me. Wash me. That whole idea is of being cleansed, of, of dirty clothing being removed, of the stains being taken away, of the whole dirt of sin being, being removed from a person. And then cleanse me, the phrase that he uses there, talks about the treatment of a special metal, a pure metal like silver, where you take the dross off and you, you take it away and you're left with that which is pure. And this resonates time and time again throughout the psalm, blot out, Wash away, cleanse me. You'll see it at least twice within the psalm. As David confesses his sin, as David comes before God and says, God, remove in totality. I come to you. I plead on your mercy. Please remove my sin. Warren Wearsby says that there are three things in Psalm 51. He says David commences the psalm by saying, forgive me. And then he says, he moves on to say, cleanse me. And he finishes by saying, use me. So David comes and he says, God, remove all stain of my sin. Remember the story about the computer? Remember that little time that the, I mentioned that the, the lady switched it off and, and I lost everything? I suppose that is a contemporary modern picture of exactly what David is saying here. There is no more record. It's gone. My sin has gone as I fall upon and call upon 
the mercy of God. He says, I call upon thy mercy and thy steadfast love. I call upon God's love. I call upon God's mercy. What a wonderful picture. That as we come as sinners confessing our sin to God, that God in his abundant love and his mercy is willing to forgive sin, is willing to remove it, is willing to take all of the record away, is actually willing to purify us, is willing to clean us, to make us whiter than snow, to use the phrase that David is using. There are other figures of speech in the Bible that are used to forgive, to discuss the, the forgiveness of God. In Psalm it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions. And in the book of Micah, God says he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. When David comes to confess, other people have been hurt as a consequence of his, of his sin. Other people have been badly hurt. Bathsheba, Uriah lost his life. The consequences were horrendous. And yet he comes to God and he says, against you have I sinned. This is the heart that loves God. He understands that others have been damaged, but the issue of his sin is between him and God. And when we come with our sin, we confess it to God, and God is love. God is merciful. God will forgive. This is reinforced when we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us, note the word, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sin, he will forgive us our sin, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A contemporary songwriter has written, Forgiven, forgiven, child, there is freedom from all of it. Say goodbye to every sin, you are forgiven. I've done things I wish I hadn't done. I've seen things I wish I hadn't seen. But the thought of your amazing grace and my cry, Jesus, forgive me. Unfortunately, as we read this, there are two abuses of this passage. That he, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and will cleanse us. Faithful to forgive and will cleanse us. What are the abuses? One of the abuses is that sometimes we think our sin is too deep. One of our, sometimes we think our sin is, is so horrific that God couldn't possibly step down to forgive that sin. Maybe you're sitting here at home. Maybe you don't even belong to Crescent. Maybe you do. And you're sitting there struggling under that enormous guilt of sin, saying, if I could only just remove it, but that's far too much. What I've done is far too horrendous. My friend, it's not me that's speaking. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. There is no sin too deep, too big, too bad, which God in his mercy is not willing to forgive. If you come to the cross and kneel at the foot of the cross and look at the man who died on that cross for your sin, that is the cost and God is willing to forgive. But the other issue is that sometimes because we think that all we have to do is come and confess our sin, we sometimes trivialize our sin. Oh, well, I've sinned, I, I just forget it. And so we move into an area which we need to really seriously consider. And that is the area that there is two aspects to our life, to, to live a sinless life, or to endeavor to live a sinless life. Because each and every one of us sin. And that is what Charles Swindle has called corrective theology and, and practical theology. What does he mean? He says that whenever you read John, 1 John chapter 1 and 9, that that is corrective theology. We have sinned and God is willing to forgive us of our sins and he is willing to restore us. He's willing to cleanse us. That's corrective theology. But we also have, if you like, a preventative theology. You only have to read the book of Romans, and in particular chapter 6, to talk about how we should yield our bodies and, obey, and disobey its lusts. We don't go on presenting our bodies to sin, but present ourselves to God. We avoid sin. How could this be illustrated? I suppose, uh, like many fathers, you have taught your son or your daughter to learn to drive. There are fewer things in life more terrifying than sitting beside your teenage daughter or son and they have the hands on the steering wheel as you go down the road. But there are two ways in which you could approach that. You could approach it from a corrective point of view, that if something happens, we can correct it. There is an insurance policy. We've got all of this in place. Don't worry too much about it. Whenever you have an accident, here's how you get in touch with the broker, and here's what you do. The insurance will cover it, providing you have been careful. And in some ways, we can, we can correct it. But what I did was prevent it. I said, now don't speed. Take your time. Watch out. Be careful. And so therefore, that is a distinction. Yes, everything can be sorted out. God will forgive. God in his mercy and in his love will forgive, will remove, will cleanse. But our responsibility is to prevent ourselves ever getting into that situation. Could David have prevented it to come back to where we were? Of course he could. First of all, David was idle. He was on the top of his, his rooftop and his men were away working. Yes, he could have been at war. Yes, he could have been leading where he was. It's in those moments of being idle where it is most tempting. And certainly over the last number of months, many of us have been idle. And so being idle creates that situation. And secondly, he saw a woman bathing. Now, it wasn't his fault that he saw a woman bathing, but he could have averted his gaze. He could have walked in. He could have pulled the curtains. He could have walked away from her. But no, he stared upon her. He focused on her. He concentrated on that situation. He let it go into his mind. He saw it. 
And then whenever he the third thing that he could have prevented was he could have, whenever he heard she was married, she has a husband, he could have drawn back. But none of that prevented it. And if David had only done one of three of those things, the whole account that we're reading about, the whole account of Bathsheba, adultery, death, all of those issues would not have taken place. But David didn't prevent it. Whenever temptation comes in, and it does come in, none of us are immune. This is a sexual sin that we're talking about, but this is not all. It's murder that we're talking about as well. But there are other sins. Your tax reform. Whenever you're sitting there, looking there at your tax book, and you're looking at it and what you declare, your business, your relationship with others, whatever it might be, your anger management, whatever that might be, that tip of moving from temptation to sin has enormous consequences. Remember, David was at the top of the mountain. He was in garments of mourning. He was barefoot. He was weeping. The whole scene demonstrated the consequence of sin. And between that chapter 13 and what we just read about David going up in the mountain, the story is horrific. His own wives were degraded by his own son, Absalom. His baby child with Bethesda and Bathsheba was to die. His son was to commit a horrible crime with his half-sister. Brother hates brother and as a consequence a brother murders a brother. Absalom rises in rebellion. David was forced out of the city that bore his name. The consequences of his sin were not removed. The sin was forgiven. Make no mistake about it, he was cleansed. But we live today with the consequences. Not, not every person, not everything that happens is because of a consequence of sin. Let me clarify that immediately. There are tragedies. They're not a consequence of sin. But in David's life, in David's occasion, here and now, it was because of his sin that the list I have just talked about occurred. Because Nathan told him, God says, the sword will not depart from your house. Nathan told him what would happen. David is a beaten man. God loves David. And he loved him so deeply that he disciplines him so severely. And David, as you see that scene of him climbing up that mountain, is sobbing. He's lost his mind. He's at his bitter end. He's broken. He's bruised. He's twisted. He's confused. The consequence of sin is evident. Standing there on that mountain, looking at that city that he loved at the last time, I wonder if David could have written a letter to his younger self, what he would have said. I know it's the in thing to do now. The trouble is that David wasn't writing to a much younger self. He was writing to a 50-year-old self. And maybe the words of Galatians are the words that speak directly into David's situation. And maybe if he knew them, he would append these words to his younger self. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. Consequences to sin. 
And to summarize, David sinned. He came before God and he repented of that sin. I have sinned. Psalm 51 acknowledges that sin, recognizes that sin, realizes that God will forgive him of that sin, and he's forgiven of that sin. But David, for the rest of his days, lives in the consequence of that sin. This is quite a a solemn topic we've considered this morning. And while I'm talking to you, I'm equally talking to myself. As I reflect on my life, if I could write my letter to my younger self, what would I have written? What would you have written? But can we finish where we started? The computer was switched off. All record was gone. But I had to spend the rest of that night with the consequence of my own stupidity, knowing full well what I should have done. I didn't do it. And the consequences lasted for a matter of days. David knew what he should do. David didn't do that. He committed a sin. Yes, his sin was wiped. But the consequence lasts for the rest of his days. I trust that God will speak into each of our lives, challenge us and renew in us the reality that sin can be forgiven and that we can stand cleansed before God and that God will give us the grace and the ability, the courage and the strength to live with the consequences of what we have done. Let us close in prayer. Father, we come into your presence. We thank you, our Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom and by whom we have forgiveness of sin. If there are some who have been listening in this morning who have never come to that point of placing their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their own and personal Saviour, may they come and kneel at the foot of the cross for sin to be washed out, for it to be blotted out, for them to be cleansed. We thank you that you are a God who forgives our sin. And Father, we pray for those who are living with the consequence of a sin, the regret of that action, the regret of what they have done, if only, if only, if only. We pray, Father, that you would speak into their lives, that you would challenge them, give them the strength, the grace and the ability to do as David did at the end of Psalm 51, to allow God to use him. And so, our Father, we thank you for this time we have spent in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Our service is over, but we're going to conclude with a hymn, a well-known hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain An Interest in the Saviour's Blood? And we're going to sing this song together and hymn together. If you'd like us to communicate with you, feel free to email the Crescent 
we are willing to have a conversation with you about some of the issues which we have discussed this morning. We pray that this morning's service will have been challenging and helpful and encourage you in your walk with him. Thank you. I'm